We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad! you're watching no way jose you can find me on the no way jose youtube channel all the major auto catchers odyssey and rumble as well really pushing that rumble uh these these episodes will for sure go up on youtube later for those who know i'm not posting up there right now because we're doing a whole series so i want to make it easily accessible for people but it'll be it'll be a little bit before i start posting them all up but you can i mean you're basically getting them early here if you prefer the video if you go to rumble uh otherwise you can see the audio pod catchers um I have Lisa Pease back with me today. We're continuing to go into the RFK story. Uh, this is we're, we're going deep with this one, uh, and I'm loving it. Uh, I do remind you guys how this works. Uh, for my patrons, you guys get this stuff early. You get to see these streams, and usually I have these up in the you know for the patrons but roughly a week before it goes public or so, depending on my schedule. But if you want to support that, it's patreon.com. No way, Jose 2020. Lowest level is 2 bucks. Highest level is 20 uh, I read those the, the $20 level off at the end of every episode. Uh, give them like a quick little plug. Uh, so if that's what something you want to do, you know, consider that. Uh, yeah. Also, you can get my merch at toplops.com. Use Jose at checkout. Let's go get Lisa in here and get to it. Hey, what's up, Lisa? How you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Good. good. I'm glad to have you back. I was looking forward to this. We're going to start getting into the characters today. If you could, for my audience, you know, just in case, who knows, maybe it was their first episode or they forgot, uh, you know, kind of give people a rundown of who you are. Maybe kind of. That way they know resources where they can dig in deeper in this. And also, to some extent, a little bit of a credentialism, I guess. Uh, so, and, and I think that's a good thing. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been, uh, my name is obviously Lisa Pease. I wrote a book called A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. I spent 25 years researching that. I'm still researching even after the book has come out because new data is still there to be found. Um, I've written about uh, the JFK case, the Martin Luther King case, and this case 
uh, but this is the only one I've done a full book on, but some of my earlier articles can be found in the Assassinations, a collection of articles that originally ran in Pro Magazine that I did with James Eugenio, who's the one who basically wrote the script for Oliver Stone's latest documentary on the JFK case. So uh, I know a lot about these things. Just a little and, bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and my, it's, it's funny, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but I actually, I worked for Governor Jerry Brown when he ran for president in 92. And that's what first got me kind of on this path because I saw how bad the media was. They weren't reporting what was really happening. And I would go to campaign events with like 3,000 people, which believe it or not, you know, pre-Bernie, you know, Sanders and pre-internet days, 3,000 people is a huge amount. You're lucky to get 20, 40, 60, 100 at a political event. So, you know, but the media would like dismiss as like, oh, a small handful of supporters. And I'm like, 3,000 people is not a small handful for an event like this. And so I thought if the media could be that dishonest about that, what else have they been lying to us about? And I got involved with FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. And they would look at media stories and look at the story behind the story. Anyway, it was from that that I eventually found some books on these cases and got sucked right in to the rabbit hole, essentially. <laughs> yeah, uh, there is definitely, uh, there's a whole other podcast to be had there with the kind of the, the media and then the kind of the, the media stamping it down, especially in light of modern day with the new media, which I think uh, to some extent with like the RFK stuff and so like there was a little bit of that too, where like, I guess the... The, the news media was kind of on the upswing, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting conversation. Something maybe talked about. And yeah, maybe we can do that at the end of this. At some point. <laughs> but right yeah, now, I could go on about the media yeah. and the CIA's control thereof for a very long time. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> but uh, we're, we're currently, I think we're, we're at a point where I think it'd be behoove us to start digging into some of the characters, particularly we've already kind of been introduced to the main characters, Sirhan, of course. Uh, but now I think we, we're kind of at this point where we covered the crime now, I think, you know, get a little bit deeper, look into the suspects, particularly, I think, in this episode, we'll go into, I believe in your in a, that great presentation you had, I saw that you said over the radio uh, the night of. They, six or they different were, suspects. Yeah, there were six or more suspects. So I kind of wanted to go into those kind of, you know, I mean, some of them obviously are going to be more or less important than others. So, you know, de depending on how important you think they are, we can breeze over them and maybe or maybe cover them another time. But I do think it's interesting, the other group of people, because they did kind of frame the situation as if Sirhan was the only possibility. And if he's the only possibility, why was why were there other people who were brought in or, or were suspects that were being pursued at, at the time? I'm not sure. If exactly. Taken in, so. Exactly. Well, the first suspect on the police radio, shockingly, was that a Mexican waiter working at the hotel had killed Robert Kennedy. Now, that could have just been a misdescription of uh, Sirhan, but I don't think it was because they had actually given him a name. And we'll talk about that character on another episode because his story and that whole well, maybe I actually I think it fits better with this version of the story. His name was Jesse Greer. And what makes him interesting is that immediately, you know, or soon after Sirhan's arrest, one of the guys interviewing him, Bill Jordan at the LAPD, you know, left the room, talked to some other people, came back in because Sirhan wasn't telling anybody his name upon his arrest. They didn't know who they had. And he had no ID on him because it was a habit of him and his brothers to leave their wallets in the glove compartment. It's just what their culture did. <laughs> 
And uh, so he had no ID on him. And the police thought that was highly suspicious because usually that's what you do when a conspirator, when you're trying to buy time for conspirators to get away is that you don't have any ID. So Bill Jordan had heard that the guy arrested was named Jesse Greer, that he was a waiter at the Ambassador Hotel. So he walked in, he calls him, hey, Jesse, to see if Sirhan responded. And of course, Sirhan didn't respond because that wasn't his name. Um, but what's super interesting about that, and it's going to tie into another suspect we're going to talk about in a minute, Michael Wayne. Um, but Jesse, there was supposedly a fry cook named Jesse who worked at the Tommy's big, you know, there's like a Tommy's hamburger stand at the corner of Westwood and Wilshire, famous intersection here in Los Angeles. If you live there, you know right where that is. And Michael Wayne, who we're going to talk a lot about, had taken a very suspicious trip to the Ambassador Hotel because he was east of the Ambassador Hotel, you know, by about maybe a 30-minute walk uh, earlier that night. And then he went past the Ambassador Hotel to the Kennedy headquarters, which was, you know, would have been like an hour walk. He claimed he, you know, walked. I don't believe it. I think he hitchhiked. Um, and then from there, he did provably get a ride to Westwood, where there was another event going on. And then he comes back in a car with two men and a women, woman. And I can't help but wonder if one of the men in the car with Michael Wayne was this Jesse Greer fry cook slash assassin guy. So very interesting story. But anyway, so the first suspect that they radioed in was that. That was the first information they had. A Mexican waiter had did it. I will also note, this isn't in my book, and I haven't talked about this in other presentations, so I'm giving you a little scoop here. But I looked at video from right after the assassination, and there is a point where they're showing the crowd, and I don't remember if it's KTLA or CBS or NBC because I viewed so many of them, but there was a point where some guy is brought out through the crowd, and that's not Sirhan because he was taken out a way that would have been off camera and down a circular staircase. I mean, that that was filmed by a different set, but this was somebody being brought back through the embassy ballroom, and he's surrounded by four guys. They have him hunched over, and he's got like a jeans jacket with a turned up collar, and you can't see his face, but he does have dark curly hair. And it's not Michael Wayne either. And it's not Terry Lee Frazier. I'll talk about both of those guys in a minute. So it's like a fourth guy who was apprehended there that night. And that might have been the Mexican waiter. So because he fits the description, he's the right size and shape. So I don't think this was an accident. I don't think they misidentified Sirhan. I think there was another shooter there that, you know, was was working for the hotel. So that's interesting. Okay, now the second guy on uh, police radio was called in by Sergeant Paul Shraga. Worked for the LAPD, was driving by when the call came in, shots fired at the ambassador. So he was literally the first up on the scene. He set up a command center and was almost immediately approached by this, you know, these witnesses who described a tall blonde guy leaving you know, the scene of the crime that they thought had been involved. So he gets on the radio and he calls in this tall, sandy-haired, six-foot-two guy. Well, Sirhan is 5'4", short, dark, brunette. I mean, clearly not the same guy, right? So now we have three suspects. Um, 
And then the fourth one they call in is Michael Wayne. They said, we got this guy being held, you know, at the Ambassador Hotel. He's about 5'8", dark curly hair. You know, they described it's clearly Michael Wayne. The fifth suspect they called in was Sirhan himself. So they had four other guys on the radio before they actually got to Sirhan. And then after Sirhan, the sixth, or I'm sorry, I skipped one. The third guy was a, a stocky, short, 30 to 35 year old Hispanic type male. Um, they weren't sure he was swarthy and he was with a woman who was in a coat and two people in a car saw him kind of scurrying by suspiciously. And he literally threw out his car door to stop him, managed to stop the guy who was wearing a hunter's cap and the woman kind of stood off in the dark. So they couldn't really see her. And, you know, they tried to ask him about the shooting. And of course, he pretended not to know anything and, and maybe didn't, you know, could have just been an innocent couple. But they reported them to police because they felt their behavior was suspicious. They looked like they were trying to escape quickly. All right. And then the, the sixth guy, and I'll start with him because he's kind of the least important, um, is Terry Lee Frazier. So he, along with Michael Wayne and Sirhan, there were three people apprehended at the hotel, not just one. <laughs> so, you know, right there, the LAPD is just full of it when they say there's only ever been one suspect. They, they literally had six different people on police radio that we can even kind of partially identify. And three of them were literally, you know, taken into custody. Now, Terry Lee Frazier was found wandering in the bushes right outside and, uh, when they asked him like what he was doing, the police didn't buy his story. And he claimed he'd gotten separated from his party and was trying to find a way in. And that could have been believable, but it seemed like he kind of told a series of things that didn't seem to be true when he was being interviewed. So like I said, I don't really think he's a suspect and they're more interesting people to dwell on. And they did eventually let him go, but they kept him like five hours that night. All right. Now, Michael Wayne is, is far more interesting. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like this guy is everywhere that night. He is seen by all kinds of people. And he's especially noticeable because he's begging everybody for their press passes. All right. He claims he's a collector of political memorabilia. I've been to, you know, political memorabilia conventions and, you know, walk past booths. I've never seen a table of press passes. So I don't buy for a second that he was collecting press passes to sell at some later date. I believe he was collecting press passes because at the Ambassador Hotel, those were like all access passes. If you were a member of the media, you could be allowed anywhere because the campaign didn't want bad press and they're not going to tell you, oh, you can't go there. You know, so except literally in Kennedy's private quarters, but anywhere else, if you had a press pass, you could be there. And Michael Wayne is hanging close to Kennedy all night because no one knew when he was going to come down. He might have come. The, the polls close at 8 p.m. Um, it looked like he was going to win. So and it's like the lead never really left him. So at any point between 8 p.m. and midnight, he could have come down to give the concession speech. But because he had just lost in Oregon the week before, he didn't want to take a chance on, you know, coming down, claiming victory, and then having that overturned, as you can imagine. So Michael Wayne hangs out. There's like a little makeshift bar outside of Kennedy's room on the fifth floor where the reporters are hanging out. He's getting free drinks. He's not a reporter, but he's begged these press passes, and he's using them for all they're worth. Now, here's the thing. He claimed that he had two Kennedy PT boat 
tie clips. These these were like cool collector items. All right, but right before the assassination, he appears to have given it away. So again, don't tell me this guy's just collecting memorabilia. He's scouting. He's up there trying to find out when Kennedy's going to go down so he can signal the rest of the team. That seems to be the most logical explanation. And here's the other thing. He was not a fan of Kennedy. In fact, he was kind of a Nazi. He was an extreme right winger who hung out with a guy who had tried to blow up a Martin Luther King Jr. event. I mean, you know, he ran around with the Minutemen. I mean, he was, you know, like a Timothy McVeigh type, right? Yeah. You know? it sounds like so it sounds like, like he was cool. He like he was glowing, like he was glowing, which is a term I, I like to use to kind of like putting off the the airs of someone who is a is a Fed or or, or Fed adjacent of because that that just sounds like an instigator and what like I don't know that that reads weird to me. Obviously, that's just yeah. surmising I and mean, pattern recognition. That's not conclusive. He could just yeah. be, genuinely be that person, but it, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I I tend to think he was CIA, so we're kind of on the same wavelength there. Because I really think Michael Wayne was running the plot on the ground at the hotel, making sure that the right people were in the right positions, getting all those extra press passes because every one of the conspirators, and there was more than one, you know, it wasn't just Sirhan, it wasn't just Thane Eugene Caesar, there were others in the pantry firing. He needed to get them all in there, so he needed a lot of press passes. And curiously enough, of course, the girl in the polka dot dress who we've talked about before, um, who was also on police radio, supposedly. Now, here's where I'm not sure if Shiraga was accurate or not. He thought he'd put out a report about the girl in the polka dot dress and a guy in a gold sweater, because that's what Sandy Serrano had reported. And he may have put that out, and that might have become the first APB. Uh, but it was not his first report. His first report was a tall Sandy guy, and we have it on tape. And the police tapes are recorded on like a barrel where they record six or seven tapes at once. And so only a tiny portion of that, the first 90 minutes, Philip Fraun Prague, who had like similar equipment and could decode it and strip it and separate the channels, he translated only the first 90 minutes. So there might have been a lot more going on. Um, anyway, uh, the girl in the polka dot dress was also begging press passes all night and people mm -hmm. remembered her for that reason. So it's it seems to be a team effort, yeah. <laughs> you know, so so that's pretty interesting. And all right. So Michael Wayne, he he goes into the press room, you know, he tells people, uh, you know, that he just wants to collect press passes to you know, for memorabilia. Some of them don't believe him and try and shoo him out of there. He tries to hang out in the pantry after uh, he stays up on, with Kennedy until he comes down to give his speech. He comes down in the nearest possible elevator to the one Kennedy got into. They exit and start walking through the pantry about the same time. Michael Wayne intercepts him in the pantry. And at that point, he's holding apparently two posters rolled together in a tight roll. And uh, he presents it to Kennedy, and this is on film, and asks Kennedy to sign it. And Kennedy does and leaves and keeps going on to give his speech. Well, then Judy Royer, one of the campaign workers, sees Michael Wayne and she recognizes him because she's seen him at other events and she throws him out of the pantry and he tries to get back in through the embassy room and another woman you know is trying to isn't sure if she should help him or not because he seems a little suspicious <laughs> and you know but he manages to worm his way back in and then 
when Judy Royer's like boss shows up to throw him out, he says, oh, Kennedy only half signed this and he's going to come back. He told me he'd finish signing this. No one gives you half a signature and promises to come back. I don't care what the politician is. No one would ever say anything like that. I've worked on a lot of political campaigns. That never happens. <laughs> so, you know, he's just, he's just lying. He's lying his eyes out. But what's really interesting is in that video, you can see how tightly rolled that poster is. I mean, the ending is like, you know, not more than an inch and a half in the original film. But after the speech, after the shooting, Michael Wayne is now captured running from the pantry. People are following him saying, get him, get him. Two other guys are running with him. There appears to be a gun in a rolled up poster that may have been in Michael Wayne's hands or it may have been in one of these other two guys' hands, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, but at one point, the poster and the gun or the gun seems to go out one hallway and Michael Wayne is they split basically and Michael Wayne is captured without a gun the guy with the gun escapes all right and again there's two or three witnesses to this this event from slightly different angles but it's clear they're all seeing the same thing one was a tall blonde guy who might have been the sandy-haired guy that people you know told Shiraga about originally uh he's the one who seems to have run out the south exit with a rifle in a rolled up poster and Michael Wayne has only apparently one poster at the end, and it's unraveled and a little ragged at the ends, as if something had been in it that had been quickly extracted. So it doesn't look like it did before. It's not the tightly rolled. It's no, no longer a collector's item. You know? okay. <laughs> so I, I laugh because it's like people repeat this stuff as if it's true just because he said it. Oh, he was just trying to collect political memorabilia. It's like, did it ever occur to you that could just be a cover story? <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. here's the other thing. He had gone to three different campaigns that night. He'd been over at Kuchel's campaign, East of the Ambassador. Um, and then he had gone into Westwood and gone to, I'm forgetting, uh, who was the guy who was also running with Kennedy uh, against, uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on it. Yeah, uh, anyway, he was the supposed progressive that RFK didn't think was very progressive. But Michael Wayne got a book from that campaign. And then he went to the, the Robert Kennedy headquarters and picked up some stuff. Where did all that stuff go? Because when he's arrested, he doesn't have like a barrel full of stuff in his arms. So he must have had a coat, possibly a backpack. And there was a coat and a backpack found in a little garden right off the embassy room on that upper level, just kind of sitting in the brushes. And earlier in the night, there's a story of a guy who seems to have met Michael Wayne, or it could be another guy, because there's another guy, same height as Michael Wayne, but with acne on his face and a slight lisp. And it's not clear if the guy saw Michael Wayne or this other guy, because it kind of seems to be a combo of those two characters. But whoever that was had a bag that the person reporting to the LAPD said, I used to have a bag like that. And it carried a gun in it that you could assemble very quickly. And he's like, I know that from my previous job as a redacted. And over the redaction, they wrote insurance agent. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know any insurance agent who carries a gun, a secret gun in a special type of bag nor if he was an insurance agent, would they have needed to black that out? 
So clearly he's probably a CIA agent and they put insurance agent instead. So anyway, um, but this guy was kind of hinting that something big was going to go down. He seemed to have a bag, kind of chatty. And there were several reports of people who were thought they had talked to Sirhan because Michael Wayne and Sirhan, they look so much alike that when I showed his picture to Munir, he goes, oh my God, he looks so much like my brother. I mean, he's like, I could see where people would be confused. So the police would tell everybody, oh, that was Sirhan you saw, even if it wasn't. They didn't care. They just didn't want people thinking there were other suspects. Yeah, uh, but question. there were, yeah, go ahead. It's Kuki. Real quick, we're going to echo. So if you could mute your side just for a second, uh, if you're able to. Oh, never mind. It's gone away. There was an echo. Uh, but okay. I, I just, it's funny. There is a common, I know it sounds crazy when you explain it to people, but it is a common thread, especially in these large conspiracy theories where doppelgangers just magically seem to be such a common thing, which I'm sure a lot of that can be attributed to eyewitnesses and misremembering things or whatever. But the same thing happened with Oswald. It happened with McVeigh yep. as well, where there were all- It happened weird, with uh, yeah. James Earl Ray, you know, yeah. there are people who, yeah, yeah. Each, yeah. each of these people had people- claiming to be them or imitating them or looking like them. And in, in the ambassador hotel, there were at least two other people besides Wayne who looked a lot like Sirhan. And you can tell again, because of where they were seen and we know Sirhan was somewhere else that it couldn't be the same person. So that's pretty, it's, it's one of those, it's what we call the fingerprints of an intelligence operation. When you see a lot of lookalikes or people claiming to be people that they're not, somebody else either claimed to be Michael Wayne or was Michael Wayne, but it doesn't sound like it because he was blonde and Michael Wayne was clearly dark haired unless he threw on a wig right at that moment, which I don't think is possible because it was right during the shooting and he was running out immediately after with his brown hair and no wig was reported found. So I do think it was somebody else. But in um, the Watergate episode where they did all the break-ins, two of those guys used to share the same Edward Hamilton alias, Frank Sturgis and E. Howard Hunt. And whenever they would do their operations, they would just always call themselves Edward Hamilton. So if you tried to track one, you might get the other. It's just a common intelligence operation technique. Um, same with Eduardo, Jim, Jim McCord, and E. Howard Hunt were both paymasters in Florida, and they both used the name Eduardo, but it could have been either of them, and maybe others for all we know. So anyway, that's an excellent point. Um, so anyway, Michael Wayne's lying. He's now, and then as it's getting close to the time of the assassination, there's a fountain in the middle of the lobby of the Ambassador Hotel. I've actually been in it. It's, it was a really cool fountain with like dolphins and spouts and stuff. And four people, four guys and a girl are seen at that fountain by different witnesses, all of whom thought they looked suspicious. Because I, I'm sure you've all been to a party, maybe in high school or something, where everybody's having a good time except for those like three people over there <laughs> who are like clearly not having a good time. And it's like a different vibe. And that's the way people kept describing this crowd and Sirhan and his associates. They stood out because they weren't in that happy party Kennedy's winning mode. And they were underdressed because in those days, campaigns were formal affairs and people, women would wear like full length gowns to the victory party. I mean, it was a big deal. White gloves, you know, men would wear very nice suits. And here you have these guys in jeans and a kind of frumpy little dress, you know, with polka dots, which is, 
more pop than formal. <laughs> so they really stood out and, you know, to people who were paying attention because a lot of people weren't. But one guy was watching this crowd because he was worried they were going to attack a different candidate at the hotel that night. He was worried about his Republican candidate and he knew there was a, a quick entrance from where they were standing to the room where his candidate was speaking. So he was keeping an eye on them. And he said, Michael Wayne was in that group and Sirhan was in that group and a girl in a polka dot dress was in that group. And I believe another guy I want to talk about, John Corey, appears to have been in that group as well. John Corey is super interesting because, first of all, he claimed he wasn't even at the hotel that night. But two people who knew him really well saw him there and were certain, 100% certain, wasn't anybody else. And one of them had seen him fairly recently because it turned out they both worked at the hotel and he had only recently learned that Corey had, was in the accounting department. And so he like passed him in the hall. So he knew what he looked like and he was certain he saw him. So the first thing Curry did was basically lie and say he wasn't there. Well, the witnesses were credible to the LAPD. So, you know, they kind of went back to Curry. It's like, it's not good enough. <laughs> you know, we have these people who say, well, I was there, but then I left and I had this other job. Or actually, he didn't even say that first. He said, I was there early in the night, but I left at 9 p.m. and went to get my wife who was coming in from the airport at midnight. And she was coming in from the airport at midnight. On the other hand, that's a great way to drop off escaping assassins on the round trip to Beirut, right? You know, the the woman, there was a woman who was with a guy named John Fahey, who was not the girl in the polka dot dress, but she talked to him all day long. He picked her up that morning at the hotel. He thought, you know, maybe he could get lucky, have a lay on one of his sales trips, invited her on the road, and surprisingly, she went with him. But she was trying to get his car. And when he parked, you know, they did like a little makeout section session. And then when he got out of the car, she had moved over like she was going to steal the car. And he got right back in again. And uh, anyway, but that woman kept talking about they're going to get Kennedy tonight at the winning reception. And Fahey is like, what are you talking about? And he just thought she was making things up until, of course, Kennedy was killed. So, um I, I lost. I'm so sorry. I lost oh, where I was going with it. I think you were. I think you were con connecting it uh, through to Curry. Is my my thing. Because I know there's a lot to Curry. So uh, particularly yes. like his alibi falling apart, which we were at right now. Yes. Yes. Well, let me get back to Curry because he is super interesting. So anyway, after uh, they realized he really was at the hotel, there were very credible witnesses. So they literally at that point, then they go to him and say, look, you need a better alibi. That's basically what the LAPD told him. And meanwhile, they start querying Goliath about Curry. And Goliath is code name for the CIA. And the LAPD was talking to the CLA throughout the CIA throughout their investigation. In fact, at the very first press conference, the police chief basically mentioned something about the CIA and somebody question him, what do you, why did you bring up the CIA? And he just started to stutter like he couldn't help it. Like, whoops, I wasn't supposed to say that. But, you know, the, the ostensible reason is obviously they thought he might be a foreigner and they wanted his background and that's the reason. But after the, so first of all, the, the police challenged Corey and then he goes, oh, well, I should have told you I had a second job. I was actually working at Globe Security. 
And then he gives the name of his friend at Globe Security, who just happens to be his boss, who just ha happens. And then he tells about how the guy left at 11 p.m., but that guy vouches for Curry being there at 11.45 p.m. It's like, well, how could you vouch for him at 11.45 if you left at 11? What did you do, hang out in the bushes or in your car until you saw him leave? I mean, not credible. And the fact that it's his friend, not credible. And so the CIA sensing maybe that there's a problem here uh, actually gets in touch with the LAPD. And suddenly, Curry is no longer a suspect. And Curry seems to have been a CIA agent. Uh, what not necessarily involved in the assassination, but clearly a CIA agent working out of the Ambassador Hotel. He had taken many trips out of the country with no visible means of support. He was not known to have a lot of money. He claimed he had a, a rich father and didn't. That was a lie. Um, and he would send postcards from foreign countries to one of his instructors, who the two people who saw him at that hotel knew they were all in the same class together at a local community college. And so they didn't buy that either. It's like he never had any money. How could he possibly be making these trips? And so the LAPD found something else more interesting. How could he get in and out of the country without a single passport stamp, you know, without any record of his having come in or left the country? And then he gets in trouble for, um, he supposedly like bought a car from somebody who claimed he stole the car. I believe them more than him at this point. And when the police came and tried to sort it out, who calls but the American embassy in Beirut. Now, he was a Lebanese national. So it should have been the other way around. It should have been the, the Lebanese you know, embassy in America calling to defend one of their own citizens. But no, it was the American embassy in Lebanon calling to get Corey off the hook. Now, if that doesn't scream CIA agent, I don't know what does. So here you have Michael Wayne, you know, lying his way around, secret, you know, gun, you know, and if, if that is Michael Wayne, like I said, it could still be somebody else, but you definitely have Michael Wayne lying and getting press passes and getting people into the pantry. And by the way, just before the shooting, to go back to Michael Wayne for a second, um, he, he bragged about getting this tie directly from Robert Kennedy himself. He claimed he had traded one of the PT-109 boat pins he had for the one Kennedy was wearing. So he could say this one had been personally worn. So he's like really proud of it. Right before the shooting, he gives that away to somebody. He gives that and the two clipped together press passes away, keeps one of the PT-109 boats, but tells the other guy this is the one Kennedy wore. And then that guy ends up bleeding on the floor. And I have not been able to identify who the guy wearing those press passes bleeding on the floor was. Um, it looked like it could have been Vince DiPiero, who was right near Kennedy when it fell down and got blood all over his glasses. But he was dark haired. He had glasses. This guy was blonde in a green suit. DiPiero had an orange turtleneck sweater, which, by the way, had bullet holes in the sleeve that he could not get the LAPD to examine, even though they happened during the shooting at the pantry, <laughs> you know? So uh, anyway, so I, I think Michael Wayne, like I said, was running the plot and getting the gunman in and out of the hotel. I think that was his job. And, uh, and Corey, I don't know if he was involved or not, but everything about his story is so suspicious that even the LAPD had to basically beg him for an alibi and the CIA had to call and get him off the hook.
that's pretty darn interesting i oh, think absolutely yeah uh, 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 just out of curiosity uh who who out of this group is still alive uh, the group that we've covered so far you mentioned a couple Curry is still alive um it's funny because I talked to Shane O'Sullivan some years ago and he said, you know, the only person I could never find was Michael Wayne. And then several years later, he's like, oh, yeah, I talked to Michael Wayne. Now, he could have talked to him after I talked to him that first time. But if he had so much trouble finding him, how did it get so easy later? And how do we even know it's the right guy? I mean, when when the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the JFK case went back to Dealey Plaza and tried to interview witnesses. There was a guy in the film, I'm sure you've all seen the Zapruder film of the car driving and Kennedy's head getting blown away, but there's a guy with an umbrella and it wasn't raining. It was a hot, sunny day. What was he doing there? Well, the guy they interviewed I don't believe that was the actual guy holding the umbrella. I think he just claimed to be the guy. There was nothing about his story that I found remotely credible, but it was a way for them to tie up a loose end. We got the guy. There was nothing to it. He was just doing a protest, you know, a protest so obscure no one would get the reference. I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure that was just not the guy. And they sent some other lackey in to pretend to be the guy. Um, so that's, yeah, that's that's kind of how that stuff works. So anyway, um, I mean, so, uh, uh, yeah. go ahead. Were you about to say go that? ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I, I was just about to ask if there's any other like meaningful information. I guess now since we kind of covered all, all of them, I guess you, if you have anything you can recall about them that is a character, but I, I guess I'm kind of the part of what I was digging at with the ones that are still alive is just kind of like. Also, I'm kind of curious, like what they did later, like if there if there's anything interesting there and any of their stuff, because I mean, obviously, if these people, you know, are putting off the signals of feds, like, well, what did it? Like, well, one of them, I won't say which one. One of them ran for mayor of Beverly yeah. Hills, which I think is pretty darn interesting. Yeah. And what's funny is that in the media, they said it's funny that he's running because he seems so secretive. We can't get any information out of him, but he thinks he can be mayor. You know. And that's also like something a CI guy would do. Yes, yes. He gets the <laughs> feeling that I think he, at the uh, time he was running, Bob Tannenbaum either was the mayor or had only recently been the mayor. And Bob Tannenbaum was the chief legal counsel for the House Select Committee on Assassinations. So maybe he spread some of his knowledge about Kennedy to the Beverly Hills community and they wanted somebody else to go spread disinformation to the Beverly Hills community. Because it's funny how people will take something that a friend tells them and whispers in their ear, they will take that as fact above actual documented information. I, I will never understand that. It's like, just because a friend in the mob tells you something doesn't mean it's true, you know? <laughs> It's, well, you know. <laughs> well, all right. Uh, well, all right, Lisa. I don't want to keep you any longer. We covered what we meant to. I think next episode we'll probably go into other people that should have been suspects uh, that, that we didn't cover today because we covered like ones that actually seems like there was some movement in the investigation and looking into them. We'll get into other ones that maybe got more breezed over. And then I think uh, in that probably towards the end of the episode, we'll probably recap all of it and see kind of what we can interpret from all the different people and the actors involved. I did think it was interesting. You brought up the point that this group of individuals did look different because I think any sort of conspiracy that has any sort of 
chance of having you know success is going to have redundancies in it and if this is some sort of mind control op i know i believe it was you you mentioned in the previous episode that there were other reports of other people with polka dot like things and now if you have people in what oh, yeah. more plain clothes these are things that are going to stick out more to the mind which will make it more easy for you know suggestibility redirection because of the people standing out so i would assume it, it's not as simple as one guy goes ooh, look in the thing and it's hypnotized. it's a it's a group mm. effort i think there he's being herded uh, is if if we're taking that route of uh of you know just kind of like a, a assumption of that happened something sort of mk ultra hypnosis thing uh, I think that mm -hmm. makes sense that it would be. And I, I think there were multiple teams. I think there was mm -hmm. an upstairs team and a downstairs team, and I can talk about that the next time. So Yeah, and we'll, we'll get yeah. into more of that because we're kind of just laying out all the different people, kind of some of the you know stories about looking into them as suspects, and then we'll kind of tie it all back together in a bow next episode. But I appreciate your time, Lisa. Could you let my audience know where they can find you and maybe where they can find some, some of your, your, uh, your content? Yes, well, I do have a blog, and there's a ton of old content there, so you kind of have to dig and search there, but it's realhistoryarchives.blogspot.com. If you put in HTTPS colon slash slash, put that S in there, uh, it will be secure. Otherwise, you'll get that warning, oh, this site's not secure, even though it's it's Google's own property. I don't understand why they do that. Maybe they don't want you to read my blog, which is why you should. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at at Lisa P. So you can find me there. Awesome. It's the only again. place that gives me a free <laughs> platform. Sorry. Because yeah, other platforms will shut me down. So Oh, I feel you there. That's like like I've been saying at the beginning of all these episodes. I'm not posting on YouTube right now. Uh, just because I have that strike active, and I will, you know, eventually th th these ones will go up. But for those watching, I, there will be content in the future where I just know the the kind of content we're covering. Uh, probably not smart to put up on YouTube. It might nuke my entire channel. So this will be going up on things in like Rumble, or you'll have to listen to it just audio. Uh, so I definitely could sympathize with that problem. Uh, yeah. I appreciate your time once again. Uh, for those who want to find my show, you can find me on YouTube, all major audio Odyssey, Rumble as well. I want to give a quick shout out to my sponsors, Toad, uh, my co-host on Tower Gang, which is an offensive comedy podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at uh, Tower Gang Toad. Also have at Abrogate D's. Go give him a follow. And also have Kevin B. Clark, a full-time guitarist and private music teacher in the New York area. So if that's something you need, go hit him up. And then at Z O V E R A C K on Twitter. Go give him a follow as well. Uh, all good friends, all good mutuals of mine on Twitter. Uh, and I appreciate your time, uh, Lisa. I already said that. I'm repeating myself. But if you guys want to follow me, <laughs> follow me on Twitter, at Jose. Give me a like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Go check out Lisa's book for sure. I have mine on my way right now. So as soon as I'm done with Aberration, the Heartland of the Real, which I'm getting, getting further to the back. I'm a very slow reader. Uh, when it comes to physical reading so but i'll get to it yeah, that's the next book that. i'm reading by the way is <laughs> aberration in the heartland yeah. yep yeah. while you're reading aberration i'll be reading your book so that, that works okay. out perfectly well i appreciate Alrighty. it this was fun we'll do another again soon and uh yeah uh more, many more to come hopefully and we thank you out. thanks Whew. <laughs>